Sometimes the best time for killing is once you're out on parole after being put in prison for killing. Today we discuss the one known as the Genesee River Killer or the Monster of the Rivers, Arthur Shawcross. Let's open the serial killer file. Much about Arthur isn't known for an exact fact because Arthur was known to be a tremendous liar who would talk himself up to impress people in a less than charming way. We do know that Arthur was born in Maine in 1945 but moved to New York State at an early age. His intelligence fluctuated throughout his life but he was generally seen as being lower than average. According to Arthur, he had been sexually abused by a number of his family members. His mother would sodomize him with foreign objects such as a broomstick and his aunt forced him into oral sex with her. These things set in motion his insatiable sexual desires and sex soon became a top priority for Arthur. Arthur at 21 was already married and a father before he was drafted into the army. At this time, Arthur divorced his wife and gave up rights to his infant son, never seeing him again. He fought in Vietnam and bragged about cutting women's heads off, eating them, raping them, and nailing their heads to trees or sticking them on posts. It's unknown as to what is true, and it is even speculated that Arthur never even saw combat. But he did attribute his violent, animalistic tendencies to Vietnam. It's believed he attacked and raped a number of Vietnamese women and little girls. After he was discharged from the army, he returned to New York and got married again, and then proceeded to take one step that many serial killers often do. He began setting fires. Arson is believed to have a powerful sexual effect on some people as they are aroused by control. So sending emergency services into panic mode gave him a rise. He was caught for the arson and for burglary and was sent to prison for it, but released in 1971 after he saved a guard's life during a riot. He and his second wife divorced while he was in prison. Prison didn't do much for Arthur's already troubled mind, and once he was released, he was much worse than before. Upon his release, he married for a third time and got a job for Watertown Public Works. Less than a year after his release, he sexually assaulted and murdered a young boy and, less than four months later, raped and killed a young girl. He was arrested a few months later and confessed to the murders. In one of the more shocking judicial decisions, thanks to a plea bargain, the murder of the young girl was reduced to manslaughter and the murder for the young boy was dropped entirely. He was sentenced to only 25 years in prison. But that is not where he stayed. Arthur was released in 1987 after prison staff and caseworkers foolishly ignored the warnings of prison psychiatrists and believed that Arthur was no longer a threat. Not even a full year later, in 1988, now free, Arthur's murderous behaviors were pushed into overdrive. He began strangling and battering women to death, mostly prostitutes, and began mutilating their bodies. In not even two years, Arthur tore through 12 women some of their bodies not found for months after he was done with them. Most of the bodies were found near the Genesee River. A surveillance helicopter located one such body and Arthur just so happened to be standing nearby. 
Some stories claim he was urinating at the bridge he had just dumped the body off of, but it's also believed he may have been masturbating. He was stopped and apprehended and confessed in custody. Though he attempted to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, his defense was too weak, and he was found guilty of 10 murders and sentenced to life in prison. On November 10th of 2008, Arthur complained of a pain in his leg. He was taken to a medical center where, later that day, he died of cardiac arrest. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, a man so torn between his intense sexual desires and his staunch religious beliefs, it led him down a path of death and depravity, for which he would become known as one of the most prolific serial killers in history. Let's open the serial killer file. Gary Leon Ridgway was born on February 18, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah, the middle son of Thomas and Mary Ridgway. Gary regarded his early life as uneasy. His mother was a domineering, abusive woman who verbally abused him and his brothers, and his father was a meek man who used physical punishments against his sons. Gary had a bedwetting problem up until his early teens. Light bedwetting is often considered one of the signs of a serial killer in the making. His mother would belittle him and force him to be bathed by her when he would wet the bed, often while wearing a revealing robe. This carried on until his early teens, causing both anger and sexual attraction towards his own mother. His father introduced him to the idea of necrophilia, telling him stories of a necrophilic co-worker at a mortuary he worked at. Gary liked the idea because having sex with someone who is dead, you wouldn't get caught. No feelings, she wouldn't feel it. Due to his tumultuous home life, he began to grow mentally disturbed. Gary was still only a teenager when he attempted his first kill, the victim being a six-year-old boy who Gary stabbed viciously. The boy, while bleeding, asked Gary why he did it, and Gary said he always wanted to know what it was like to kill somebody, while he laughed and walked away. Thankfully, the boy survived, but not without a surgery that left a foot-long scar. Gary had an IQ of about 82, quite below average intelligence. He struggled throughout school, causing him to graduate at age 20 in 1969. After graduation, he took a job as a painter at Kentworth Truck Factory, joined the Navy, and married his high school sweetheart, Claudia Craig. During his tours in Vietnam in the Navy, Gary began using the services of prostitutes, leading him to contract gonorrhea. Despite this, he continued to see prostitutes and had unprotected sex with them. After he returned from the Navy, he learned Claudia had been having an affair, and the two divorced in 1971. This brought Gary great turmoil. He referred to his ex-wife as a whore, despite attempts to reconcile the marriage. Gary eventually remarried to a woman named Marcia Winslow a few years after his divorce, and they had a son named Matthew in 1975. It was during this marriage that Gary began to show a darker side of himself. 
Marcia claimed Gary had choked her and demanded sex frequently. He also became devoutly religious during his second marriage, reading from the Bible often, preaching throughout his neighborhood, crying after church sermons, and demanding his wife adhere to strict biblical teachings. Despite his religious devotion, however, his insatiable desires for sex grew to the point where he would demand Marcia engage in sex with him in public places, sometimes in the places that the bodies of his victims would end up being discovered. Despite his new marriage, child, and religion, he still used the services of prostitutes in the area. He was torn between his convictions and his voracious needs. This marriage would ultimately not last, and Marcia eventually filed for divorce in 1981, gaining primary custody of Matthew and ordering Gary to pay child support. The rejection of both his wives, the anger and lust he felt towards women, and all the events in his life that led up to his current situation made him overflow with rage. It was in the summer of 1982 that Gary's thoughts of murder and sex finally boiled over. The first Green River victim to be found was that of 16-year-old runaway Wendy Lee Caulfield in July of 1982, having been strangled and her body dumped just outside of Kent, Washington. By September of that same year, the bodies of five more women would be found within the vicinity of the Green River and the surrounding Seattle-Tacoma area. Gary felt as though women had a control over him, lying to him, causing all of his problems. He chose prostitutes because of his hatred of them. He found it was easy picking them up. Gary admitted to having a fixation with them and despised them for what they were, but was unable to stop himself from using them. He later told investigators he would show the women a photo of his son to gain their trust, even going so far as to bring his son along to pick up some of his victims. While partaking in a sex act, if the woman did not cooperate with his requests or something were to anger him, he would strangle her. If he felt an urge, he would return to the bodies and perform acts of necrophilia on them until he was unable to do so due to decomposition. Over time, he hid bodies farther away from his home in an attempt to deter his necrophilic urges. In 1985, Gary attended a Parents Without Partners group where he met Judith Mawson, a woman five years his senior. They dated for two years before moving in together, and she would become his third wife in 1988. Gary would describe his marriage to Judith as extremely happy, Judith regarding him as the perfect husband, and Gary found himself and his urges to kill calmer while he was with her, and he used this to motivate himself to end his merciless killings once and for all. In his work locker, he carved the letters NKDK for no kill, don't kill, to remind him what he had at stake if he kept killing. Judith remarked that when she first moved in, he oddly had no carpets, and he would leave for work in the early hours of the morning under the guise of seeking overtime pay. She claimed she never once suspected anything and knew very little of the case due to not following the news. Ultimately, despite his relationship with his wife, Gary could not contain himself forever, and he continued to kill. Gary was arrested twice on charges of solicitation in 1982 and 2001. He was first suspected of being the Green River Killer in 1983, but was able to pass a polygraph test in 1984, 
though later analysis revealed he had actually failed. Police took hair and saliva samples from him in 1987, but due to DNA still being in its infancy, he was released without further questioning. By December of 1984, the body count had risen to 42 victims and the Green River Task Force was formed that year. The task force was consisted of detectives from King County investigators, including David Reichardt and Robert Keppel, who had interviewed Ted Bundy on occasion. Bundy even offered his own interpretation of the Green River Killer's mentality. He suggested police stake out any fresh graves they found in order to catch the killer revisiting to commit necrophilia. But by 1998, the victim total reached 46, and the task force had little to go on. It was finally in 2001 that DNA from the first five victims concretely linked their cases to one another, and the DNA collected from Gary in 1987 was finally confirmed to be the Green River Killer. Gary was arrested on November 30, 2001 at Kentworth Truck Factory. He was initially indicted for the murders of Marcia Faye Chapman, Cynthia Jean Hines, Carol Ann Christensen, and Opal Mills, and later Wendy Caulfield, Deborah Bonner, and Deborah Estes, after paint fragments found on the victims' bodies were linked to the car paint used by the factory Gary worked at for nearly 30 years. Prosecutors were set on sentencing Gary to death. However, instead, it was decided that closure for the families of the victims was a better outcome. Sheriff Reichardt interviewed Gary in an attempt to extract more information from him, but he remained elusive. Finally, in a deal set out by his lawyers, Gary Ridgway pled guilty on November 5, 2003 to 48 counts of aggravated first-degree murder in exchange for his cooperation in locating the bodies of his other victims. He was sentenced to 48 consecutive life sentences on December 18th. He led investigators to the grave sites of Pammy Avent, Marie Malvar, and April Buttram in 2003. He also pled guilty to the murder of Rebecca Marrero in 2011 after her skull was found near the location of Marie Malvar's remains, making her his 49th confirmed victim. However, Gary confessed to a total of 71 murders in his over 20-year career, as he called it, but he admitted he had killed so many that he had lost count. Today, he remains in Washington State Penitentiary at the age of 68. A sideshow can be a rather scary place, but sometimes the scariest things happen once the show is over. A family with a startling deformity, a love life that turned to vicious violence, and a desperate attempt to resolve an unfixable problem. All this and more as we explore the anatomy of murder. of Grady Stiles, more popularly known as the Lobster Boy, was an unpleasant place to be. During the carnival season in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Grady was one of the many sideshow performers who people came to gawk at, sometimes in wonder and sometimes out of rudeness. But Grady never concerned himself too much with the opinions of onlookers. He was only there to put on a show whether his audience was impressed or not. 
Grady was born with a severe deformity called electrodactyly, which resulted in the fusion of Grady's fingers and toes to form what appeared to be pincers for extremities. This was obviously where he got the name Lobster Boy. Because of his deformity, Grady couldn't walk and was confined to a wheelchair, his legs almost flipper-like and unable to bear weight. This resulted in him using his upper body to maneuver around, usually in a wheelchair. All of that locomotion provided by his arms turned Grady into a rather strong man despite his downfalls. But he didn't only utilize his strength to make life easier for himself, but he used it to also make life harder for others. Screams often erupted from the trailer that Grady and his family called home. Grady frequently beat his wife, Mary Teresa Stiles, sometimes even in front of their three children who he would at times beat as well. There was no doubt that Grady Stiles was a cruel man. Anytime the children would cry, Grady would never offer sympathy to them. Instead, he'd threaten them and berate them, exclaiming that he would give them something to truly cry about. His fingers, though fused, acted effectively as true pincers, viciously pinching his wife, choking her, and slamming her in the face. Aside from this, one of his more favorite ways to abuse his wife was to headbutt her in the face. Those who witnessed his outburst remarked about how eerie and capable Grady was. In seconds, he would fling himself out of his wheelchair and scramble across the floor like an animal, holding himself up with his four meaty enlarged fingers. He'd overwhelm his target and quickly take them to the floor, where he'd begin working on them with violent attacks. He was relentless, groping his wife harshly and tearing at her skin, jabbing at her eyes, anything he could to hurt her. At one point during one of these fights, one of Grady's daughters named Kathy, who was pregnant at the time, attempted to break up the fight and separate the two by rolling Grady's wheelchair in between them. Grady became so infuriated by this that he turned his fury to Kathy and beat her so badly that she went into labor early and delivered a premature child born with the same deformity as their vicious grandfather. The Stiles' home was an incredibly unstable place to be for everyone except Grady himself, but getting away from it all wasn't so easy. Grady Stiles had three children with Mary. Of them, two possessed the same deformities as their father. Truth be told, the deformities had been in their family for generations. Grady would often tell the crowds about how his father and grandfather and great-grandfather and so on had been born like he had been, and once his children aged a bit, he added them into his sideshow with him, traveling as an act known as the Lobster Family. Of the many issues in their family, money really wasn't one of them in terms of poverty, as Grady would make anywhere between $50,000 to $80,000 per season and was considered one of the major stars of the show. There were no gimmicks with the Lobster Family, no tricks or illusions. What the crowd saw is what the crowd got. Once the winter set in, the shows closed down, and many of their performers, including the Styles family, resided in Florida until the new season came around. Despite the pleasant weather and more free time, Grady still didn't hesitate to inflict physical and emotional pain on his family. If only Mary had known when she was younger what she knew after marrying Grady, perhaps it would have made a difference. 
At age 19, Mary ran off to join the carnival, escaping her old life. Oddly enough, she felt like she belonged best there, despite the fact that she was surrounded by people with shocking abilities and deformities. As for her, she was what could be considered normal. She wasn't there for the same reasons the performers were, but the carnival always needed staff to keep the shows running. It was here that she met Grady Styles, often watching him as he sat in a small cubicle and waved at those who passed by and stared with wide eyes and a mixture of disbelief and shock. Mary didn't see the monster so many others had. She quickly fell in love with Grady and the two were married. Mary remembered that Grady was sweet as could be, a true gentleman. But when Grady got some alcohol in his system, something in his mind switched and he became a much scarier man, a true monster, greater than the one others saw him as. He was a real nightmare come to life. Mary was impacted in ways that she would never forget. Mary remembered that Grady typically was a great guy when he woke up in the morning. He'd wake up at 8, be drinking by 10, and would be terrible the rest of the day. In 1973, their marriage hit its first end when Mary decided that she couldn't take the abuse any longer. After Grady launched himself at her, took her to the floor, ripped her pantyhose away, reached his clawed hand inside of her, and ripped out her intrauterine device, a device used to prevent pregnancy. Mary was so disgusted and horrified, emotionally wounded from the actions, that she wisely left him. She went on to marry another man sometime later, but Grady's rage knew no limitations while the two were separated. And just because he was at a physical disadvantage didn't mean he was incapable of murder. In 1978, one of Grady's daughters named Donna had found love. Donna hadn't been seeing Jack Lane for very long, but the two were deeply in love. Donna, different sources claim, was between 15 and 17 years old and Jack was 18, but the two decided to get married anyway. Grady forbade the marriage, threatening to kill Jack numerous times. Donna, very unhappy with her drunk and abusive father, wanted an escape and told Grady that if he didn't approve the underage marriage, she would live with Jack anyway. This further enraged Grady, who prided himself on the ways he dominated his family and controlled them, and he eventually fulfilled his numerous promises of violence against Jack. Grady was at home when Jack came to see him on the night before Jack and Donna were to be married. It's unknown what truly happened at that time, but what seems to be believed is that Jack stood up to Grady and attempted to tell him exactly how it was going to be between himself and his love, Donna. Other sources say that Grady summoned Jack to his home for a private talk, perhaps leading Jack to believe that he would finally get Grady's approval to marry his daughter. Either way, once Jack arrived, he was met with the barrel of a gun and was shot dead by Grady in cold blood. Once Donna had discovered what her father had done, Grady sat and smiled at his distraught daughter, mocking her, saying, I told you I would kill him. Grady went to trial where the defense attempted to get the jury to pity Grady and his condition. They played heavily into the fact that Grady had an unfortunate life, driven to drinking and violence by the incessant struggles he faced. Poor Grady was just a victim of his circumstances. Grady even managed to conjure up some tears in the courtroom. His daughter Donna took the stand, telling Grady that she would see him at his grave. The jury deliberated for three hours and came back with a verdict, guilty of third-degree murder. For it, Grady received a sentence of 15 years, but not in prison. 
15 years of probation, a sentence that shocked many due to its leniency. But the truth of the matter was the state believed that their prison system, even in their handicap accessible facilities, wasn't equipped to handle the specific needs of Grady Stiles while behind bars, not only due to his deformity, but his numerous health conditions he had developed over the years from an unhealthy lifestyle. So Grady got to serve his sentence from home, where he continued to drink heavily and beat his children at the drop of a hat. Fate played an increasingly twisted game and brought Mary and Grady together again in 1989. Mary, surprisingly enough, forgave Grady and the two remarried, and Grady seemed rather decent for a time, but as it almost always goes, the violence surged back to the surface, as did copious amounts of sexual assault where Grady would violate Mary with foreign objects. But the murder of Jack Lane wasn't the only murder that would be a part of Grady's unfortunate story. It came to a point one day, after yet another violent altercation, that Mary realized she needed to resolve this lingering issue. She was afraid for herself, but most of all for her family. During her years divorced from Grady and with another man in the sideshow, she had another child named Harry Glenn Newman Jr. He wasn't a particularly smart boy, but he loved his mother dearly and became part of the sideshow himself as a human blockhead, often driving nails into his face with a hammer. In November of of 1992, Mary told Harry that something needed to be done about Grady and gave her son $1,500 to get someone to bring things to a beneficial conclusion. Harry took the money and hired 17-year-old Christopher Wyant, a carnival worker who lived next door, to eliminate his stepfather, Grady. The boy took the money, grabbed a gun, and approached Grady from behind in his trailer while he watched television in his underwear. A quiet moment before another inevitable act of violence. Christopher put two rounds in the back of Grady's head, killing him instantly, and that was it. After decades of torturous abuse, Mary and her children were free from the terrible lobster boy, Grady Stiles. But of course, the freedom came at a cost, as murder most often does. The police arrested Mary, her son Harry, and the killer, Christopher. Christopher was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 27 years in prison. Harry was convicted of first-degree murder. He sobbed freely in the courtroom and claimed that it had to be done to save his mother and her children. Unfortunately for him, self-defense isn't applicable when hiring a hitman. The punishment for first-degree murder was a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Mary, who no one doubted had been violently abused regularly, still had to pay for her role in the murder, but her conviction was reduced to manslaughter and she was sentenced to 12 years behind bars. Mary's son with Grady, Grady Stiles III, claims that his mother never had her son hire anyone to kill her husband and that instead Mary simply said out loud, something needs to be done. Harry overheard his mother say this and went to the neighbor who decided to help them by killing Grady without Mary's knowledge. Either way, Grady's violent Violence will always be remembered by his family, who harbor no love for who their father was, but instead reflect positive traits and are considered good people who have no urge to bring harm to anyone else. And I'll see you next time. Case closed. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. 
So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care, and enjoy your next episode.